Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 21, The Unrivaled. History of Portugal is in part supported by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal. And thank you so much to Ineda for signing up already and helping to secure the longevity of the show. Also, you can help me grow this podcast by recommending it to friends, family, and coworkers. And please give the show a rating and a review on your platform of choice. And I would like to say a very special thank you to Fada Kasseri who volunteered a couple of years ago to teach me the Arabic pronunciation of places and names. Though I know I mostly just stumble through it, without her, it would be even worse. So, a very special thank you to Farah. The show wouldn't be the same without you. In the last episode, we took a brief tour of the reign of the Caliph al-Hakam II and explored the impressive military, economic, and cultural heights that the Caliphate of Córdoba achieved. This episode, we will continue the story of the Christian North where we last left it off, and then transition into the epic tale of one of the most famous and impactful Muslim figures in Iberian history, the last great conqueror of Al-Andalus, Al-Mansur. I've been looking forward to covering this time period for quite a while now, not only because of all of the dramatic events that took place, but also because of the extensive material related to Al-Mansur that's available. The sheer quantity of the material really helps to build a picture of his life and campaigns. But this is also where we can run into a bit of trouble. You see, a lot of the material we have is basically propaganda. So we always have to be aware that when I'm giving you direct quotes, they aren't necessarily factual but they are a version of events as told by his contemporaries and by later generations of Muslim historians. So just keep that fact in the back of your mind while you're listening to this. And with that disclaimer out of the way, let's get started. 
When we last visited the Christian North, King Sancho I had died in Galicia in 966. His death put the kingdom in the awkward position of having a toddler for king, since his son Hamidu III was only five years old when his dad died. And he was the only legitimate member of the direct family line. And due to his father's death, his mother had no choice but to retire to a convent as prescribed by Visigothic canon law. And so his aunt, Elvira Ramirez, became the regent during his minority. But it seems like there was a big turning point in 975, the same year that Hamidu became of age to rule. Up until then, things had been pretty peaceful on the frontier, apart from the usual minor conflicts that plagued the borderlands. But in 970, there was a change of leaders in both Castile and Pamplona. Fernán González died and his son García Fernández took over as Count of Castile. And King García Sánchez of Pamplona also passed away and was succeeded by Sancho Garcés II, who was married to García Fernández's sister, further cementing the bonds between Navarre and Castile. At the same time, the Caliph Al-Hakam II was building a massive fortress in Gormaz near a key Castilian stronghold with the goal of controlling the routes into Castile and the Upper Dodo region. At the time, it was the largest castle in Europe. So, in the winter of 974-975, the leaders from the kingdoms of Leon and Navarre, as well as the counts of Castile and Alva, joined forces to attack the big new fortress built by the Umayyads. At first, things seemed to be going well. They successfully laid siege to the fort and prevented the Umayyad reinforcements from crossing the river to relieve it. But then, the defenders launched a surprise attack, and the Christian forces were scattered. The Umayyad army then crossed the river and won the battle. This defeat marked the beginning of a long period of raids and warfare against the Christian kingdoms, which they were unable to defend against. Interestingly, the regent Elvira who had been such a prominent figure of the royal court, suddenly vanishes from the records. She was replaced by Hamidu III's mother, Teresa Ansures, who also withdrew from the court and became a nun in 980. This was likely connected to Hamidu's marriage that year to Sancha Diaz, a member of the family of the Counts of Saldana. Basically, these royal ladies had a good deal of influence but their power at court was largely dependent on the support of different rival noble factions. But it's important to note that there were a lot of connections between the noble families and the royal family. And most of these families were dynasties from Leon. And it's interesting that neither the noble families from Galicia or Castile were really much involved in the court during this time. Back in Al-Andalus, in the year 975, the Caliph Al-Hakam II's health was in decline. His physicians advised him that the mountain breeze at the royal palace of Medinat al-Zahara weren't doing him any favors. So he moved the court back to the Alcazar of Córdoba. But the move did little to improve his health. And so, in September of 976, Al-Hakam II died. He was 61 years old, and had ruled Al-Andalus for 15 years. 
Now, Al-Hakam's oldest son had already died in 970 at the age of eight. So the heir apparent was the caliph's younger son, the 10-year-old Hisham II. And as we have seen time after time, the more ambitious members of the nobility usually perceive the death of the sovereign as a moment of great opportunity for personal advancement. And in a situation like this, where a minor inherited the throne, the opportunities for usurpation were just too good to pass up. Two commanders of the Sakaliba Guard did not agree with the decision of having Hisham II inheriting the throne, and accordingly planned to replace Hisham with Al-Hakam's younger brother, Al-Murida. But this conspiracy was exposed and prevented by the vizier Al-Musafi and Hisham's treasurer of the household, a man whom we will have much to say about, Muhammad bin Abi Amir. And Ibn Abi Amir was rumored to be the lover of the caliph's mother, a slave Basque woman named Sub, who had been the favorite concubine of Al-Hakam II. But before we get too far, we need to address the question of who exactly was Ibn Abi Amir. Born around 937, he claimed that his ancestors were Arabs that were part of the original conquest of 711, which meant that his family could claim that they had settled in Al-Andalus longer than even the Umayyads themselves. And it's important to note here that most of his personal history is very much in question, since we have learned most of it from panegyric poetry. So it goes without saying that all the details pertaining to his family history and his own early life are very suspect. But anyway, it seems like we're on more solid ground by the time of his grandfather. It's said that his grandfather was the judge of Seville, and that his father was a respected jurist who died on his way back from the pilgrimage to Mecca. But then again, that's exactly the kind of unverifiable detail he would be sure to include, in order to make his family and by extension himself seem more pious. Be that as it may, he worked his way up rapidly through the lower official ranks all the way up to being appointed as treasurer of the household of the caliph's wife and son. It's at this point that we see his alleged lover, the concubine Sub, really flexing her political and fiscal muscle to push for promotions and honors for Ibn Abi Amir. And he started to amass a whole range of official offices, including directorship of the royal mint, as well as command of the upper and lower police force of the city. He was also appointed as judge of the frontier and as judge of Seville and Nibela. This accumulation of offices, in turn, gave Ibn Abi Amir the opportunity to make his own appointments to various offices, therefore allowing him to build his own independent base of clients and supporters. Then, in 973, he was appointed as judge of Morocco, which I mentioned last episode. He used his time in Morocco wisely, building relationships with various Berber leaders, ostensibly to fortify the ties between the Umayyad Caliphate and the said Berbers. But more importantly, he cultivated personal relationships in that area. And that made him the principal link between the Umayyads and the Berbers, a fact that would bear fruit later on. By the time Al-Hakam II died in 976, Ibn Abi Amir was a vizier and a part of the Council of Royal Ministers as well as one of the most powerful members of the royal court. 
and taking into account the fact that he was instrumental in ensuring the succession of the 10-year-old Hisham II to the throne, we can get an impression of just how powerful a figure he was at this point. But there was a facet that he was lacking in that needed to be addressed as soon as possible, and that was his lack of military experience. So he set about looking for a suitable military man to link up with. And of course, at this time, there was no greater military leader than the indispensable man himself, the General Halib. By the time of Al-Hakam II's death, Halib was still well-respected, but lacked the influence he once had. So when the most powerful minister came courting his friendship, Halib was more than willing to attach his fortunes with that of Ibn Abi Amir. See, since the caliphate was going through its inner turmoil due to the contested succession, the Christian kingdoms in the north jumped on the opportunity to begin raiding Muslim territory. And these raids were not small-time affairs. So they became the perfect justification for Ibn Abi Amir to demand his own military command with the support of Halib. For his first campaign in 977, Ibn Abi Amir's objective was to attack a fortress the Arab sources refer to as Al-Hama, somewhere in the Kingdom of Leon, though there is debate as to where exactly that location is today. Though we don't know if the fortress was actually taken, this whole event marked the beginning of the weakening of Leon. Here is how Ibn Idhari described the event, quote, He entered through the northern frontier and camped in front of the castle of Al-Hama in Ulikia, which he besieged. He seized the suburb and took prisoners and loot from it, which he returned to Cordoba with after 53 days. This success produced great joy and earned him the devotion of the army, as his great generosity, extreme affability, and wide hospitality had won him the love and loyalty of all. Thanks to the liberality he bestowed on the soldiers, he could count on them with confidence to achieve what he sought and to fulfill his hopes. End quote. But Ibn Abi Amir wasn't done yet. That same year, he and Halib planned a new military campaign with the ultimate objective of attaining enormous popularity, and then used that popularity to gain direct control of Cordoba by removing the prefect of the city from his post. Ibn Idhari tells us, quote, He touched the tender point of the latter's heart by speaking of a common action against Jaffa, and an alliance was established between them on this ground. The courtesy shown to Halib by Ibn Abi Amir throughout this campaign completely won his heart, and they always operated together, end quote. Once the pact was established, they headed towards the Kingdom of Leon. Again, we don't know the exact location of this attack, but regardless of where it took place, reportedly the castle they attacked was taken and many inhabitants were captured and enslaved. This success greatly increased Ibn Abi Amir's prestige in the realm, but it seems that Halib was the one who did the heavy lifting during this campaign. Ibn Idhari puts it this way, quote, Most of the success fell on Khalib, who transferred it onto Ibn Abi Amir, and upon leaving him to return to his own governorship, he said to him at the moment of farewell, This victory will elevate your name high and give you great renown. The joy they will feel 
will not allow them to see what lies at the bottom of what you will ask for. Oh, you, do not leave the fortress without having the son of Jafar removed from his post and having obtained his position as the city's administrator. Muhammad promised to take advantage of this warning. Ibn Idhari continues, quote, Khalib wrote Caliph Hisham a letter in which he drew the great part taken by Muhammad in this campaign, attributing all the damage and efforts to him, and the recognition he expressed to him was an excellent recommendation to the Caliph for his friend. Unquote. So, arriving in Cordoba with riches, captives, and tremendous acclaim, Ibn Abi Amir swayed the Caliph to depose Muhammad bin Jafar from his position as governor of the city and to grant it to himself. This move paved the way for him to gain complete and total control. And before the year 977 ended, he launched his third campaign against Leon by launching a successful attack on the city of Salamanca. On his way there, he stopped by Toledo where he met with Halim, who had just agreed to marry him to his daughter, Asma, further cementing the alliance between the two. The political outcome couldn't have worked better for Ibn Abi Amir. Al-Musafi, his three sons, and other family members were stripped of their power and kicked out of office. And of course, eventually, executed. Following the coup, Ibn Abi Amir was granted the position of prefect of the city and he immediately began to purge influential backers of the Umayyad dynasty who posed a potential obstacle to his ambitions. As a result of these actions, he amassed enough power to initiate the building of a grand new palace city, known as Medinat Az-Zahida, or Resplendent City, situated just east of Cordoba. He commanded that all administrative functions be relocated to the new palace, resulting in the caliph being confined with only his immediate household and, of course, Ibn Abi Amir's agents within the fortified walls of the old Alcazar. Despite the caliph no longer being under age, it was publicized that he desired to dedicate himself wholly to religious pursuits and had delegated all authority to Ibn Abi Amir. And mind you, that all of this was done with the blessing and support of Sub, the caliph's mother. Then, in 978, for his fourth campaign, Ibn Abi Amid departed from Medina Seli, from where he attacked the kingdom of Pamplona. Then, in his second attack, the Aragonese Christian territories, and finally, he launched his first attack ever on the county of Barcelona, with mixed results. But not all of Ibn Abi Amir's military expeditions were aimed at the Christian kingdoms. The Caliphate of Córdoba also sought to control the northern region of present-day Morocco, and Ibn Abi Amir led several campaigns in that direction. In late September of 979, his troops headed towards al crossed the Strait of Gibraltar, and defeated the Zidids, who had intervened again against his North African allies. The political situation in Northwest Africa at that time was pretty complicated. Bulugin bin Zidi, ruler of Central North Africa and a loyalist to the Fatimid Caliphate, had entered Morocco and conquered Sijilmaza, as well as Fez, 
defeating and driving out the Zanata, who were the allies of Al-Andalus. Many of the Zanata sought refuge in Ceuta, where they asked Ibn Abi Amir for assistance. With Andalusian and Zanata troops deployed on the outskirts of Ceuta, Bulgin climbed the mountains of Tetuan, saw the vast Andalusian army, and decided not to confront them, opting instead to head towards other regions of Morocco, where he destroyed the Andalusian garrison of Al-Basra and fought yet another Berber confederation. The Andalusi troops managed to hold Ceuta and its surroundings, and then returned to Algeciras in January of 980. Ibn Abi Amir's alliance with his father-in-law Halib was beginning to erode, and the cause was the almost absolute power he had accumulated for himself. Halib, as a staunch defender of the Umayyads, did not look favorably on the power that his son-in-law was accumulating. Tensions escalated to physical violence in 980 when, while they were preparing for a new campaign, Halib attempted to assassinate Ibn Abi Amir himself. The quick intervention of the judge of Medina Seli prevented the attempt from being successful, but it triggered a brief yet brutal civil war. Ibn Abi Amir turned to the Berbers whom he had previously courted back in 973-974 he brought over his old friend from his North African days, Jaffa bin Hamdun, also known as Ibn al-Andalusi, and his army from across the strait. In contrast, Khalib formed an alliance with the king of Navarre, Sancho Garces II, and Count Garcia Fernandez of Castile. This marked the first time that Christian powers were brought into a conflict within the heart of al-Andalus, rather than just on its frontiers, setting a precedent for future conflicts. Their coalition won the first encounter in April 981, but it wasn't a total victory, and they went on to lose their next two battles at Calatayud and Atineza. Then, on July 9, 981, the decisive battle between Ibn Abi Amir and his father-in-law Halib took place near the modern town of Torre Vicente. We have an extensive account of these events from the 14th century Arab historian Ibn Hadib that covers these battles. Quote, the kings of the Christians and those who shared Halib's opinion against Ibn Abi Amir were asked by Halib for troops. Halib was the unopposed knight of Al-Andalus, the first of its champions, the maker of knights, and the bravest in battles. He confronted Ibn Abi Amir and was given triumph over him, defeating his army and capturing his viziers. This was repeated until Ibn Abi Amir thought of fleeing, but despite that, he tried to attack and harass Khalib until God showed him what he had not believed about the signs of his victory. Ibn Abi Amir advanced with his people towards Medina Seli to confront Khalib. Garcia had entered his land due to the movement of Ibn Abi Amir to get away from him, thinking that he intended to attack him. When it became evident that he was heading towards Halib, he went out against him with a troop of Christians, among whom there was a group of Basques with the son of their king, Hamiru ben Sancho. Ibn Abi Amir advanced toward them near Atineza and conquered the castle of San Vicente. 
Khalib then went out to meet him. Ibn Abi Amid had arranged his army in the best way. He stayed in the center with the young men and the newest troops. He placed the vizier, Jafar ben Ali, with the Berbers on the right wing, and Abdulaziz al-Tujibi with the majority of the border people on the left wing. Skirmishes developed on Thursday and Friday, and they engaged in battle on Saturday morning, keeping themselves separate and observing each other. They awoke on Saturday, prepared, and then the battle broke out everywhere, sharpening and inflaming. Halib only proceeded when the morning of this day was already advanced. On his famous horse wearing a long coat and on his head a tall golden helmet surrounded by a red turban that pointed to him and another turban pressed against his forehead. He was close to 80 years old. He had a crowd of his defending pages around him and the protection of his men. He began to observe the ranks of Ibn Abi Amir that were going up and down. He then leaned towards those around him and pointed to his right wing. They said to him, Andalusians and Berbers, let's charge against them in the name of God. And he fell on them in a great charge that broke them. The right wing was completely shattered by his attack. Then, Khalib returned to his position and said, Who are these? Pointing to his left wing. They said to him, Al-Tujibi and your protege, Al-Wadud, with their clients and their men. He said, The false ones are the first in discord. Let's launch an attack on them in the name of God. And he charged them a second time like a lion, and their feet carried them like flying, without a care for their companions. He managed to shatter the two wings in an instant, while the center remained in place. Ibn Abi Amid controlled it with his respect, and he himself remained on tenterhooks, waving his hand in amazement and moving his feet in his stirrups, wondering where to watch and contemplating his ruin. Despite this, he rejected his misfortune and his spirit calmed down. Khalib emerged from the other violent battle and took his position once more. He said to his men, do you see the consequence of perseverance? We have broken both their wings and only the center remains. Only those who are with this cursed hunchback are still alive. They will not protect him and they will leave him abandoned. Fight them with courage and perhaps God will put them in our hands by his power. Then he raised his hands and said, O oh God, if you know that it is better for the Muslims that I remain, and worse for them that Muhammad bin Abi Amid remains, then make him perish and grant me victory over him. And if he is better than me, grant him victory over me and make me die. However, the prayer was decided by God in favor of Muhammad. Khalib attacked after this and launched himself against the center, mixing himself up among their ranks. A great cloud of dust arose and his silhouette was lost in it, and he fell among the horses. His horse was lost and he fell dead on top of it, with no trace of a wound on his body. Some of his attendants claim that he separated from them at the beginning of this clash after the prayer. He was delayed and they searched for him and found him lying dead.
without any movement, while his horse chewed the bridle beside him. He had fallen before them, and they turned their faces away. One of Halib's men approached Ibn Abi Yamir and announced his death, but he did not believe it until he produced Halib's ring and his head. Muhammad then fell prostrate. The Muslims praised the loss of the polytheists, who fled in all directions, unable to find access to Atineza. The Muslims rode after them and killed an immense number, including Hamido ben Sancho. Garcia, Count of Castile, was saved, and he did not return to his country. Instead, he asked for hospitality from Ibn Abi Amir for his army, his cities, and his possessions, because he knew that God is all-powerful." After his death, Khalib's decapitated head was placed on a cross and displayed at the Gate of Victory in the New Palace City, while his body was hanged on the Gate of the Alcazar of Córdoba. As a result of this victory, Ibn Abi Amir was given the title of Al-Mansur, which means the victorious. And this is the name which he is most commonly known by, and by which I will refer to him as from now on. The victory over Halib meant that Al-Mansur now had supreme power in Al-Andalus, and he would hold on to absolute power for the next 20 years. During this time, Al-Mansur was always careful to pay lip service to the rights and authority of the Caliph, claiming that he was simply serving the Caliph and looking out for his interests. But anyone who was paying attention could see what was really happening here. And this caused concern among the religious jurists of Al-Andalus, since the Umayyad dynasty was the only family in the peninsula with any kind of claim to legitimacy to rule since they were at least tangentially related to the Prophet Muhammad. Al-Mansur possessed no such legitimacy. And so, besides keeping up the facade that the Caliph was still in charge, he also waged relentless warfare against the Christian kingdoms in the name of Jihad, as a way to appease the jurists. Well, not only to appease the jurists, the incessant campaign served many purposes one of the most being that the campaigns meant loot and slaves, both of which served to enrich the soldiers. And nothing made troops more loyal to their commander than consistent rewards and money. These campaigns also served the goal of weakening the Christian kingdoms in their defenses, which was much needed from the perspective of Al-Andalus, since the northern kings had been using the death of the previous caliph as an opportunity to attack Muslim lands. So, in 981, for his 15th campaign, Al-Mansur decided to attack a fortress that the Arab sources referred to as Tarankusa, and a city whose name I know I'm butchering, called Bdisr, I think. BDSR. I don't know. Anyway, it seems that the current consensus is that both the fortress and the city are located in modern-day Portugal and refer to the cities of Trancoso and Viseu, respectively. And it would be at this moment that Viseu returned to Muslim hands after being conquered in 878 by Alfonso III. Finally, the very next year of 982, 
Al-Mansur directed his 17th campaign, this time against the Kingdom of Leon. Specifically, he attacked one of the flanks most affected by his military activity. Al-Mansur's troops went up to Zamora and reached the outskirts of the capital of the kingdom, where he faced the troops of the King of Leon. For these events, we actually have a Christian source called Historia Silense. The chronicle states that the situation of the kingdom under Hamidu III was chaotic and that the nobles rebelled against him, and that some of them even allied with Al-Mansur, since it seems that there were Christian mercenaries in his army. The Muslims established a camp by the river Ezla, ravaging the region between the river and the city of Leon. Hamidu III put up quite a fight, and only a skillful tactical decision by Al-Mansur prevented the total triumph of the Leonese. While the Christians quickly took refuge behind the walls of their capital, a violent storm of hail and rain so hampered the Muslim armies that they had to abandon their siege plans and put an end to this campaign. Shortly after, the ever-restless Al-Mansur launched his 16th campaign, this time against the Kingdom of Pamplona and the counties of Barcelona and Girona, with the end result being a peace treaty with Pamplona that was sealed by the King of Pamplona being forced to marry his daughter Uraca to Al-Mansur. The Galician nobility, who were already starting to freak out about the rapidly deteriorating situation on the frontier, decided to take matters into their own hands. In 982, they proclaimed the son of Arduengu III, Vermudu, as king in Galicia. And it seems like one of Vermudu's main supporters was the Count of Coimbra, Gonzalo Mendes. As per usual, our sources for these events are very poor. So, we don't have a clear view of the circumstances that led to the civil war in Galicia and Leon. What we do know is that by May of 984, Hamidu III was driven out of Leon and retreated to Astorga where he died in June of 985. He was 24 years old and had ruled Leon for 18 years. We will leave Al-Mansur and the Christian kings right here for now. I think they've all earned a break. Next time, we will pick the story right back up and continue the saga of Al-Mansur and all the hapless people caught in his inescapable wake and bear witness to his greatest victories. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 